holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra. As always, with James from Gunner Blog, a goodly first morning of the Premier League season to you. Goodly first morning of the Premier League season to you too. And what a weekend it was. Did you did you watch a lot of it? I watched uh well, I mean, obviously watched us and then I watched Match of the Day. I didn't, I was sort of around on Saturday flicking in and out of some of the football watching. I was sitting actually uh, on Saturday afternoon playing FIFA, career mode on FIFA, bemoaning the fact that Glenn Camara, Glenn Camara <laughs> and... <laughs> And Jeff Rena Adelaide are the two central midfielders. In the transfer window, Arsenal have gone out and they've bought Tolisso and what's the Schalke lad, uh, Goretzka? Oh, really? Yeah, they've bought those two and then they still play Glenn Camera and uh, uh, Mohamed El Neni. <laughs> <laughs> and these, these guys who spend. Anyway, look, I was sitting there playing that and watching some of the Chelsea game. It was quite entertaining, wasn't it? The. Uh, the weekend until yesterday, uh, where it got spoiled a little bit. The, the first weekend of the Premier League season has been pretty enjoyable. Yeah, the first couple of days were absolutely great. Yesterday, less so. But I, fortunately, yesterday I didn't really see much of it, so I didn't have to put up with that. And I, I mean, Friday night we'll get onto. I'm sure was absolutely exhausting. <laughs> uh, and then Saturday, I mean, I guess. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I mean, I say it was brilliant. I'm, I'm only really thinking about one result, but that Chelsea result really couldn't have got the season off to a better start. I uh, I found that, frankly, hilarious. Yes, I did too. I saw some people saying that the Chelsea fans were singing Spend Some Fucking Money, which is I really... Mean, in poetry, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really? Seriously? Oh, you can't help but laugh. I mean, you'd laugh anyway, but... The lack of self-awareness there is really quite something. Um, I mean, what, what did you make of the uh, the red cards? Uh, I thought Cahill is long overdue a red card, to be honest. I thought that was a tackle that absolutely thoroughly merited a red. Yeah, I, I saw a bit of debate about that, and I couldn't really believe it. For me, it's a, a clear red card, and I think he's lucky he didn't cause an injury. I mean, Cesc, the second one... You know, he's a, he's a bit unfortunate, maybe, because I think he's going for the ball on that one. He's just a little bit late. It's just a bit of a Paul Scholesy, not very good tackle, isn't it? Mm, but, you know, if you get a yellow card in the first half for sarcastically applauding the referee, you leave yourself open to that kind of thing. It was a Bouet-esque, that kind of sending off, isn't it? Well, I mean, the sending off of the weekend was actually last night. Did you see Ronaldo sending off yesterday? I did see a bit of it, actually, on Twitter, but I'd had a couple of glasses of wine, so I've kind of forgotten. <laughs> he got booked well, he, a second he, yellow for diving, was that it? Yeah, he came on, 
um, scored within a few minutes uh, a brilliant goal, admittedly, mm. but was booked for taking his shirt off. But that was his first yellow. <laughs> well, look, everybody had the to celebration. see... Everyone had to see his nipples, James. You know, he'd just scored. It was important that the world saw his nipples and his pectoral muscles. Well, the world did see that, but the, what the world also saw was him getting a second yellow shortly afterwards for diving. So <laughs> it was a, a quite extraordinary cameo. It wasn't the old Abue sort of, you know, coming on and not surviving until the end of the game. But, uh, yeah, look, that was my favourite sending off for the weekend, but the Chelsea ones were pretty good too. And, I mean, they were 3-0 down at half-time. I mean, obviously, it's a bit disappointing. They clawed it back a little bit, put a bit of respectability no, on no, the No, no, that was line, the great thing. That was the best thing about it. You because, enjoyed that part? Yeah, because their fans would have been sitting there going, oh, oh, God, this could be one of the one of the great comebacks of Premier League history because you're three 0 down and you're down to ten men. You go, oh, no, there's not much chance. And then, well, you get a goal and it's like, oh, could we? Could we? Because remember, ten men Arsenal coming from two 0 down to beat Bolton three two a few years ago. That was that was mm-hmm. really a, a brilliant comeback. And then they would have got the second goal and then thought, oh, it's, it's nearly God. It, it could be brilliant. We could have something to talk about. And then just no, no, didn't happen in the end. They just couldn't get that that final goal to get something from the game. So I prefer that they got back into it. I mean, look, if you'd ask me, would I prefer them to lose 6-0? Yes, of course. <laughs> but in those circumstances, I like that there was a slight glimmer of hope that was then just taken away from them. Yeah, I suppose so. That is a that is a one sheen to put on it. And did you watch Liverpool as well? Their game was quite fun as well. Yeah, I was watching bits of that, actually. I was um, out with my brother on Saturday afternoon and he was following the game on on his phone because we were out and about we were doing some stuff and he was like oh god one nil down Jesus I was going yeah (laughs) I know the feeling man welcome back to the Premier League season Um, (laughs) yeah and I caught about the last half an hour of that seriously they, they don't really do defending do they Liverpool no, not so much, not so much, especially at set pieces. So uh, that was very entertaining as well. I mean, all in all, uh, I'm choosing to take the positives and call that an excellent first weekend of the Premier League season. Well, look, when you win on the opening day, something that is a bit of a rarity for us, it does give mm. you a different perspective on things, doesn't it? Because you're not immediately firefighting. How worried were you? Let me ask you seriously. You know how <laughs> how worried were you? Because I know I said this in the blog, but I was actually sitting there. At one point, we were 3-2 down, heading into the final 10 minutes, and I was thinking, I, don't, I just, I don't know what to do now. I don't know how yeah. to talk about this. I don't know how to write about it. I don't know, like, can my heart deal with all the, just the fallout from another Arsenal defeat on the opening day? How do we even try and make any sense of it? And then, of course, it all turned around. But, but you know, how worried were you? I mean, imagine, imagine the morbid atmosphere in this podcast if we were having to dissect <laughs> another opening day defeat. I don't know if I would be able to do it. I think I probably would have just texted you and been like, I'm, I'm not doing it today. Let's, t- let's talk about today. something else. Let's talk yeah, about something else. Can we something- talk about something else, please? How long can we talk about Burnley for? Um, but yeah, I, uh, I was really worried. And actually... What a huge moment it was to get that equaliser just before half-time, because I was even thinking, if we go in at half-time, 2-1 mm. down, you'll hear those familiar boos ringing around the Emirates Stadium, and I just thought, oh, God, deja vu, here we go again, more of the same. But yeah. th- thank goodness we got an equaliser then, and ultimately that didn't really shift the momentum of the game. We went out after half-time <laughs> and conceded another relatively quickly, but I just think it protected 
the atmosphere in the ground a little bit yeah. and descending into real negativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. But it was it was just bizarre, wasn't it? At, at one point, as we're chasing the game, we have a team. Is it a team? How can you describe what was on the pitch at the time? Because we had a a midfielder come wing back playing at right back, a right back playing at left back, two left backs at centre half, our, our record signing striker on the left wing, another striker on the right wing, um, Olivier Giroud, it was, whatever. You know, it was six, just bizarre, wasn't it? So many six, players six out of, of 11 players. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it was chaos, really. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. The, the, the tricky thing is, I was looking at it and going, this is a complete mess. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it just felt like we had players all over the pitch who didn't necessarily know that position or what they were supposed to be doing and the formation had changed. And then it paid off. You know, Arsene Wenger's two changes kind of uh, were the guys who turned the game around. And it's it was interesting watching it because while those individuals made a massive contribution, it was difficult to look at the strategy and go, well, <laughs> this is a coherent plan. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. It was literally just fucking throw as many forwards on as we could. It, it was a throwback to the old days of Arsene Wenger when we were chasing a game. It was throw on Canu, mm. Wiltord, Henri, Bergkamp, uh, you have Jumberg, Perez all on the pitch at the same time and just go for it. Uh, I mean, it doesn't speak to, a, as you say, a coherent strategy, but needs must, I think. We were desperate times calling for, for desperate measures. Um, but let's let's maybe go back and, and try and review the game because it started, well, I mean, I think we saw from the opening five minutes kind of what we were going to get from this game. Arsenal yeah. took the lead and you're going, oh, this is fucking amazing. Lacazette. That was you, great. Yeah, because, you know, We'd been speaking about how it would be good for him to get off the mark quickly, to put that, uh, you know, not get weighed down by the burden of not scoring, you know, as can happen with players. It might take a few games, but, you know, within two minutes, he scores, and what a very good header it was. Um, and you're thinking, well, that's just the perfect start. And then, yeah. and then Leicester equalised within two minutes. I know, I know. And, and the equaliser looked pretty horrendous didn't it i mean it it was it was messy stuff from us they had a big overload at the back yeah. post i'm not entirely sure what check was doing i guess he felt he had to intervene but he didn't really make the best of it having got there no uh, so that was pretty ugly and quite surprising really because despite um Stereotypes, I guess. Our record at defending set pieces was actually pretty good, wasn't it, for pretty much the entirety of last season? Yeah, I mean, we have been pretty good uh, in that regard. And I thought, actually, you know, we did we did cope relatively well with their stokiness, you know, because they were flinging in long throws. I mean, they're, they're dangerous just by their very nature, and they make you... They make you on edge, don't they, those long throws, because, look, they're, they're difficult to defend. But I thought for the most part we did quite well. But certainly on that first goal, we weren't awake enough for a short corner, which I think has been a problem for us down the years more than once, hasn't it? That That's something that catches us out. Um, mm. But, you know, Leicester... It's not one of the zones we've accounted for. We've accounted exactly. for all the zones except yeah, the one except very near one. the corner flag. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... You know, we had more of the possession, we had more of the ball, we had more of the chances, but certainly Leicester, every time they came forward, I think particularly in that first half an hour, looked really, really dangerous. They looked really threatening, and we, as a defensive unit, didn't look at all cohesive, which is not necessarily that surprising considering the the, the state of the back three or back five. What did you make of that? I mean, yeah, I was really surprised when I saw that because I expected... 
to be honest, I, Arsene Wenger had seemingly said that Per Mertzaka was fit to play. I thought he was going to be in there. So when I, when the teams came out and he wasn't part of it, uh, I, I was a little bit surprised. I, I mean, what do you understand of that situation? Do you think that that's purely a, a fitness thing, a bit of worry about him after that head injury at the Community Shield? Yeah, that's what I was told, because I did see um, Raphael Honigstein saying that Mertesacker mm. was perfectly fit to play based on seeing him in training all week, but I did ask somebody about it and they were concerned that, uh, you know, one clash of heads or one header and he would open up a wound in which he got 12 stitches just four days ago. So I think that was the main problem with that. Otherwise, I, I can't think of any other reason why Mertesacker wouldn't have been involved given the given the absences, given the fact Koscielny's not there, Mustafi wasn't fit enough, Gabriel's not injured, Callum Chambers is seemingly on the way out. I think we can draw that conclusion uh, on a night where we have no real central defenders. He still wasn't even in the squad. So I think yeah. it was a fitness thing with Mertesacker. I don't believe that he was just left out. I think it was a concern over his head injury. It would be strange, wouldn't it, to just leave the club captain out? I mean, I heard that he was disappointed and that he wanted to play, but you would expect that of Permod Saka, so mm. I don't necessarily think it's any real cause for alarm. And, and actually, when I saw that starting line-up, I didn't consider it a huge cause for alarm because that was the back three who played for the majority of the game against Chelsea and acquitted themselves very well. You know, we spoke after the Community Shield about how well Monreal did in that position at the heart of the, the three. Against Leicester, maybe... That was exposed a little bit and, you know, the, I guess the unfamiliarity of those players and maybe the lack of a commanding centre-half. You know, I felt the performance of Rob Holding, for example, was maybe a, a little bit influenced by the fact that he didn't have a senior centre-half like a Mertzak or a Koscielny alongside him. I yeah. thought there were a couple of moments in the game he could have done with, you know, a word in the ear, a bit of coaching, a bit of encouragement and maybe that wasn't... That kind of vocal mm. presence wasn't really there. Yeah, that, that's true. And uh, again, I was told uh, after the game that somebody from the Leicester side had spoken to some uh, some people around the club anyway, and um, their plan was to pressurise our defenders to get holding on the ball because they thought he might be a little bit, not suspect, but certainly if you put him under pressure, then he, he's... He's so young as a centre half mm. that that could be seen as a as an area of weakness. I'm not sure what his uh, passing stats were in the end. I think I looked at it yesterday, and he was around 81 percent passing uh, pass completion rate. But certainly he had a difficult game. One of those where Arsene Wenger said afterwards that he's going to be a great centre half, but you know young central defenders have have games like this where where it doesn't go right for them. And we've seen young central defenders have this kind of game before. Maybe perhaps a little bit worse than, than Holding was, and it has been damaging to them rather than mm. educational. So you got to hope that uh, the, the investment that they're making in Rob Holding and the confidence that they've shown in him by playing him in these games is something uh, that he can take stock from. But obviously it was a difficult night for him and he's got he's to reassess a little bit and, and use it as a learning experience rather than, than it being one that's going to damage his confidence. Yeah, I don't think he had a particularly great game. And if I'm honest, I saw a couple of signs of a bit of almost rustiness against Chelsea the week before. I do think that it's inevitable that Arsenal fans are going to fear the worst with centre-halves because mm. we've been down this path so many times. We've talked about it, Senderos, Giroud, even Chambers to an extent. People who've shone and then not necessarily fulfilled that potential. But I do think holding, from what we've seen, has maybe more to him than that. And I think... You know, it's important that they keep the faith of him. I can see the temptation almost to take him out the side, but I think you need to protect his confidence too. Mm. So 
I, I actually think he probably will be in a team next week uh, at Stoke and I hopefully he'll be better off for it but Jamie Vardy can be a real nightmare to play against and it felt like he was pulling onto holding and making it a difficult night for him and yeah. you know whatever you think of Vardy he's a nightmare to face when he's like that yeah well Vardy uh, exposed the other two central defenders for the second goal uh, a bad pass by Granit Xhaka a mistake from him in midfield playing it into an area where there was no Arsenal player Leicester took advantage uh, very good cross decent finish from Vardy so you're 2-1 down and you're thinking well fuck this is not going according to the, the plan that we had in the first two minutes where you thought, wow, this is going to be great. We'll get off to a good start. But a goal from Danny Welbeck. And I think what part of what summed up the, the, the system, if you can call it that, was the fact that the man who provided the assist, the man who was almost furthest forward in that, uh, in that uh, penalty box was uh, Kolasinac. Is that what we're yes, calling him now? I think it's Colosseum. I think so. Yeah. I think it's a hard a hard C or yeah, yeah at the end of it. Colosseum. I get but, so many emails uh, about it. People going, you know, pronounce it like this, pronounce <laughs> and then the video where he pronounces it Colasinac. But I'm I, anyway, Colasinac, I think we'll go with. Will we make that the house pronunciation? Colosinac. Okay. I'll, yeah. I'll I'll try and stick to it. I mean I'd make no promises, but <laughs> it's Chesney all over again, isn't it? Sid. At least this one's easier to spell. Yeah. <laughs> Sid is a good one, actually. Sid. Um like Ralph before him, you know, we've got to simplify it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, he is obviously looking like a terrific addition. I have to say, his defending on the first Leicester goal was very suspect. He sort of started on the back post, wandered into the middle of the penalty area uh, and left a couple of men behind him. But after that point, I thought he grew and grew. But he does look like a wing-back, doesn't he? He does look like someone who wants to push on and get involved in the final third. Mm. Which kind of belies his size and his physique because he's got the body of a centre-half but the attacking instincts of a wing-back. Um, but I think he showed that again. And actually, Mesut Ozil had a really weird game, I thought. But yeah. the pass from him in the build-up to this goal was pretty crucial. It was one of those penetrative passes through the lines, initially to Lacazette. Kolasinac took it on. And we got the goal. And I can't have been the only Arsenal fan who, when the ball fell at Danny Welbeck's feet, thought, oh, what is going to happen here? <laughs> well, there was an element. Uh, you know, it almost got stuck under his feet, but he, he dug it out and and, uh, and put it away. 2-2 two, two at halftime, you're thinking, OK, that's better. That is better. That You know, just we're not quite quite as uh, in danger as, as we might have been going in 2-1 down, as you mentioned. But then, you know, you you think, OK, come out in the second half and put what was wrong in the first half right. Put it right. Stay organised. Be defensively disciplined. And we, we weren't. We were all over the place again. I think before, mm. before Vardy scored his second goal, there was a moment where Petr Cech had to come miles out of his area and make what was in the end a very good tackle but a good tackle predicated on the fact that Vardy's control wasn't quite right I wonder what might have happened if Vardy had controlled the ball properly because Czech was not going to get it that otherwise uh, yeah, but you I know he had, to, he had that to was it. yeah he had to come out and uh, he Cleared put it, it away. yeah he cleared it away I mean it was a good tackle and he was obviously very alert and quick off his or quick out of his area rather than off his line but you know, it was from that kind of passage of play, carelessness at the back that led to a Mara shot that that Czech tipped over for the corner from which they scored. So we were, we were, we were sloppy. I think. Yeah. What What do you attribute those? Uh, for example, that corner and the other set piece. Do you think that was poor defensive work? Do you think it was just a very good delivery? I mean, I, I'll be honest. I don't fully understand 
our defensive system at set pieces. I know it's been quite effective, but I don't quite understand the delineation of zonal versus man-to-man and how it's supposed to work. Because mm. uh, that one, it felt like the ball was dropped into such a dangerous area, and yet there was no real appropriate cover. Yeah, there didn't seem to be somebody in, in that zone. I mean, yeah, conceptually... Uh, you look at you look at someone like Granit Xhaka, for example, who who I think probably should have done more when he saw Vardy's run. He obviously had his zone to defend, but I think he could have uh, stood in Vardy's way, or at least made it difficult for Vardy, made it more difficult for Vardy to to get past him. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. that's got to be part of it as well. I mean, it's a great header, but again, we've nobody on the back post, um, and I think uh, it wasn't good defending. It wasn't good defending at all. Um, we've got to be a bit more alert than that when it comes to, to corners. But, you know, I wonder, can you put some of that down to to first-day rustiness? Can you do that? I mean, all of the goals... I, I don't know about rustiness, but it felt like there was a lot of adrenaline in the game. You know, a bit of nervous tension, that thing of the whole... the eyes of the nation kind of being on us and desperately wanting to get that first win that eludes us so often. Mm. And I felt like there was... Uh, that there were some positives about that. It meant that there was a very exciting game and one in which Arsenal actually had some real vitality going forward at times, but there was a, a nervousness in a two, and I think you saw that defensively. You know, this wasn't a particularly controlled performance from either side. <laughs> no. No, it wasn't. It mildly. I mean, look, I, I thought it was very funny that people were focusing on our defending when Leicester, who are a team that basically want to sit back and defend and hit you on the counter-attack, conceded more than we did. So clearly mm. that, you know, the counter-attacking part, they've got down very well because uh, they scored three times, but uh, the the defensive side of their game is is not up to scratch either. So I think it's, uh, it's going to be a common theme throughout the Premier League this season. Uh, we're going to see a lot of high scores, I think, because there's a lot of poor defending and poor defenders and poor defensive systems um, and teams that can't defend. So uh, let me close my... How do you uh, feel about that? Do you mind watching that? Or are you like, hey, the more goals, the merrier? Uh, when it's other teams, yes. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> on board it. That's with the that. golden rule. Yeah, yeah. But for, for Arsenal, um, I would like us to be a bit more defensively solid, a bit more stout, a bit more organised, a bit more... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just less inclined to give up stupid goals. And I think when you, yeah, yeah, when, yeah, miserly is a good word. I think when you look at all the goals, all the three goals we conceded against Leicester on Friday night, they were all pretty much avoidable. Um, so, you know, that, that's on one hand, that's a good thing. You can say, let's not give the ball away in midfield uh, for them to take advantage. Let's defend properly from corners and, and set pieces. Um, so you can see that those things, but on the other hand, you know, you should be doing those things anyway. These are not things where you go, oh, it's not a light bulb moment, right? This is what you should be doing. It's just part of your job. So, uh, yeah, Arsene Wenger spun it that way. He sort of took it as a positive. He said all three goals are essentially preventable. I, I mean, the problem is not preventing them, but hopefully, hopefully, let's be optimistic, we can iron that out over the mm. coming weeks. Right, so 3-2 down, and we're worried, we're sitting there, we're anxious, we're fretting, we're nervous, we're going, where is it going to come from? Where is the goal going to come Where? What's going to happen? We're all thinking, mm. we, 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 what we must do is switch Hector Bellerin to left-back in a 4-4-2. <laughs> <laughs> That's the answer here. <laughs> 
That was exactly it. But look, obviously, Mesut Ozil, you mentioned him in the build-up to the second goal. He had a good hand uh, in the third goal, too. Um, <laughs> had to be done, I'm sorry. Uh, quite how Mike Dean did see that. has been a lot of fuss that. over that, hasn't there? Yeah, but, but fuck uh, it. Like, fuck that. You know, I don't care. No. I'm, and also, there's quite a lot between that and the ball hitting the net. I mean, our defending, we've talked about, Leicester's defending on that set piece is really bad. When when Xhaka clips that ball through to Ramsey, there's about three Arsenal players stood there who, who potentially put it in. Yeah. Um, and look, we always always loved Mike Dean. He's always been a friend of the uh, the podcast. <laughs> so glad to see him, uh, you know, stay on the good side. Cheers, Mike. Yeah, you're a diamond of a diamond of a man. But what a brilliant touch. I mean, firstly, what a brilliant pass by Xhaka with the outside of his foot. Secondly, amazing mm-hmm. touch from Aaron Ramsey. There was a moment, I think, where Theo Walcott was going to go for it, and he obviously got the shout from Ramsey um, and, from and backed you. off. From, yeah, from, from me. your sofa, <laughs> screaming. Don't, don't fucking do it, Theo! <laughs> Leave it alone! Yeah. Um, but uh, Ramsey, I mean, fantastic touch and uh, a really brilliant finish as well. Um, Incredible first touch. I mean, it, it, the ball was sort of drip, dropping out of the air, and he kind of took it on the outside of his foot, and it was perfectly placed for yeah. him to, to to put his foot through it and score the goal. I mean, I, I know you said actually, was it you? I believe it was you who said that if you could keep one player fit this season, it might be Aaron Ramsey. Yeah. Uh, and when you look at our midfield and some of the issues with it, I do think it's really important that we have him available. And I would love, I mean, that goal was scored with the conviction that we saw from him, you know, back in 2014 when he was banging a goal after goal. And if he could even get up into double figures this season, it would be a a big big contribution. Yeah, particularly as we can't defend for shit. So the more goals we have, the better. (laughs) I think this could be, this could be our, uh, this could be our, our 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 motif for the season. It's just score as many fucking goals as we can. You know, Ramsey, Ozil, Sanchez, Walcott, Iwobi, uh, Giroud, Welbeck, Lacazette. This is this is how we're going to cope with our our defensive frailties. But look, um, a brilliant piece of football from uh, Olivier Giroud. Well, a brilliant piece of football. Just a really nice layoff from Olivier Giroud uh, to Lacazette, who almost scored, which led to the corner, which uh, brought about the. The Giroud goal. Mm. Um, what a save as well. I mean, that, yeah. that got overlooked. He scored immediately afterwards, but that deflected shot from Lacazette, I don't know how Schmeichel kept that one out. And just before we go on to that goal and the Giroud goal, I, I think it's worth pointing out that in the midst of our defensive hopelessness or haplessness at times, I think we played some really nice football. We played some beautiful mm. football. Uh, there was uh, a few moves uh, in and around the penalty box. Danny Welbeck, I remember, putting, I can't remember who it was, Hector Bellerin was, through. Uh, uh, Bellerin, yeah. yeah he, he probably should have scored. Scored or squared it anyway. But, you know, some. I thought there was some nice football, despite the fact that a couple of players weren't quite uh, as on it as you might like them to be. But there were a lot of positives from, from the football that we played, bar the defending. And then we have the Giroud goal, what can you say? What a header. What a header. What a header. And uh, Giroud, I mean, it's so curious, isn't it? At times you see him bundled over by a centre-half and you think, why aren't you being stronger? And then he scores that goal and you see the huge power he has. He's holding off, well, two defenders almost really, who are arguably fouling him. And he, he uses his neck muscles, propels that into the far corner. I mean, that's what he can do. And it felt inevitable, didn't it? I mean, I saw people saying, even when we were trailing, don't worry, Giroud's going to come on and score. <laughs> and he, he went and did it. I mean, I saw him interviewed after the game, and I think Gary Neville asked him, you know, you keep scoring off the bench, you probably like to start games. He, he almost laughed ruefully. He must know himself, look, this is working for me, and I'm 
delighted that he's staying. Really, really mm. happy. I think it's definitely the right thing, and he's going to be a, a, a massive asset to the club going forward. Yeah, yeah. And uh, can I just say to, and I've seen it in the questions, a number of people saying that some time back on one of the podcasts, I was asked if I would sell Giroud, and I said, in a heartbeat. <laughs> Uh, I remember. I, I remember. Rem- yeah, and look, I, I was having a moment. I was just having, I was depressed, uh, you know, by what was going on at the club. It was probably in the middle of our terrible run, something mm. like that. But I think throughout, uh, I've always been a, a rigorous defender of Olivier Giroud's qualities at the club. I think he's a fantastic uh, player, even if I, you know, I've had reservations over whether or not he should be the number one striker. I think he's a, an incredible asset. There aren't too many forwards who can do what he did the other night. When you think about it in the Premier League or in European football, there aren't too many around who can do what he did against Leicester, uh, come off the bench, have that impact, but just to score that kind of a goal. So I was having a moment with Giroud. I apologize. I'm a big fan of his qualities, and I'm delighted that he's staying. He was given the chance to leave by Arsene Wenger, and he he said, my heart and my soul told me to, to stay at Arsenal. So uh, I think it's just evidence that your heart and your soul are better things to listen to than little boys. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and also, you know, I think that the problem with Giroud, I think I remember you saying this at the time, is that you didn't necessarily trust Arsene Wenger to not start him every week if, as long as he was in the squad. Uh, yeah. And Arsene seems to have got over that now, you know, I think especially with the uh, acquisition of Lacoisette. Lacoisette? Lacoisette. Lacoisette. La cuisette, ah oui, la cuisette. <laughs> uh, I think we're going to see Giroud starting less regularly. And he's found his perfect role in the squad as this super sub. You know, I wouldn't have anybody else coming off the bench. I think he's he's brilliant at that. He seems to absolutely thrive on it in a way that other players just don't manage to do. I think I think he enjoys it actually. I think he wants to be starting games. Don't get me wrong, but I think he likes coming on with that possibility of being the hero. You know, I think he revels. Yeah, in that. that that's true. That's true. And he is. I mean, he was the hero of of Friday night. Um, and I, I think during the season there's going to be plenty of football for him as well, particularly when we're looking at Europa League and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's great for him that he's decided to stay great for us as well because he is a reliable goal scorer. He's a, a very good centre forward. And, uh, you know, the more depth we have, the more options we have to score this season, the better. So, you know, we get into those final few minutes and I was thinking, Jesus, just don't do anything stupid now. Don't fucking Arsenal this, <laughs> you fuckers. Yeah. And to be fair, we didn't. I mean, there were a couple of moments of, a couple of moments of mild threat from Leicester, where they were chucking long balls in again. The Rory Delap guy was throwing in long throws, and uh, Petr Cech uh, plucked a couple of them out of the air, which helped ease some of the the pressure. And in the end, we held on. An extraordinary way to start a new season. Yeah, it is. And look, I think there were concerns in the performance but really I almost think the first game has to be viewed in isolation and it, it is really about getting those points and kick-starting the season because it plays such a distorted big role in kind of determining the mood around the club do you know what I mean if you lose that opener it just casts a shadow over everything right up until the transfer deadline and I think getting the win was so vital mm. that I almost I'm 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 not prepared to write it off fully like some of the some of the defensive mishaps but I almost feel like now we've got a platform 
on which to build. We just had to get that first one out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. It was all about the points, however we got them. I mean, the, the idea, I mean, there's no point dwelling on it or, or trying to say what would have happened if we hadn't won. But given the, given the record uh, that we've got on the opening day uh, down the last few years, given just the pressure that's on anyway this season not to do or repeat the same mistakes, it was hugely important. So, yeah, we'll have to see what happens, obviously, next weekend against Stoke. But we got the points, and really, th- that is the main thing. Um, there are obviously some things that they need to work on, and hopefully they can they can do that. I don't think we're in any real position to make huge assessments, but I think it is important that we get some defenders back, some actual central defenders playing as central defenders uh, as this season mm-hmm. progresses, because... I don't think you can get away with that kind of a makeshift back three slash back five um, for for very long. So uh, a bit of stability and continuity there, I think, is going to be really important. That's it. I think you can sort of throw it together and pull out a great effort for a one-off occasion like the FA Cup final. I think think doing that in the longer term is, is more difficult. And I actually think as well... You know, we spoke about the centre-halves, but I thought the the wing-backs didn't have particularly great games Mm. against uh, Leicester. And I I would really love to see Kolasinac at left wing-back. So as soon as we get some centre-halves back, I'd I'd love to see that change made. All right. So and just before we move on to part two and the questions, did you... (laughs) What did you make of Sky's decision to uh, host their post-match analysis pitch side rather than Mm. in the perfectly uh, acceptable custom-made studio that's upstairs which allows them to uh, you know to do things in silence I thought it was quite funny at times you could hear the Arsenal fans uh, singing my favorite moment though was uh, Jamie Carragher referring (laughs) he called Arsene Wenger arse yeah (laughs) Um, which if you haven't heard it here it is every point you walk against the second part of the table uh, can uh, cost you a lot. It's not a commonly used nickname for the, for the boss. Uh, I don't know how he would have felt about that, but I like the sort of assumed intimacy that Jamie Carragher went for there. The, the funny thing about the pitch side um, screening was that they weren't the only ones. So from my seat, I could see Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville there, and then 10 yards down the touchline, you had Robbie Earle... Uh, who was Rob Earl with? I forget. Lee Dixon. Someone from uh, Lee Dixon. Yeah, absolutely. And then another ten yards down the touchline, you had Andy Townsend and Ian Wright doing it for. I think it was for Africa or something. So they had all these little sets of um, TV presenters doing their thing, and in front of them all after the match would gathered crowds of different sizes and uh, the one around the Sky team of Neville and Carragher was particularly big and every time they showed a replay of an Arsenal goal in slow motion the fans would go every time it went in I mean I can't Im- <laughs> yeah exactly that no sign of him sadly but, um, <laughs> but I can't imagine that's a sustainable thing is it I mean surely you know if Gary Neville stands out in front of a few thousand Arsenal fans that's never going to end particularly well is it? It, it it's something that probably on Friday night given the fact that everyone was in a good mood and it, it was a new thing that they hadn't really expected I don't suppose anybody really expected that to happen that mm. it was just sort of oh look at this this is a new thing but now 
when people know it's going to happen and when things maybe don't go right, you can imagine that a sustained chant of, you know, who the fuck is Gary Neville or, you know, something is going to be problematic because that is going to happen at some ground sooner or later this season. Andrew, are you, are you, you're not inciting that to happen, are you? I, I, no, like you. absolutely not, James. I would not right. encourage any uh, fans of any football team to get together and stay behind and sing songs with offensive language in it after the game simply because it would be picked up on television and be funny and they would then have to reassess the whole idea of doing these pitch-side things or they have to evacuate the stadium. I'm not saying anybody should okay. do that or organise that. I'm just saying that sure, it's sure, inevitable sure, sure, sure. that this is going to happen it's out of our hands there's nothing we could do it's, absolutely yeah, it's okay good we cleared good cleared that up <laughs> <laughs> all right well look that was uh, that was the game that was the opening day 4-3 arsenal win against leicester um i'm still not quite right after it to be perfectly honest but uh, we've got a little bit of time to recover between now and uh, the next game against stoke on saturday what we're going to do now though is take a short break we'll be back with questions and more in part two right after this <laughs> Imagine if you could shop the shelves of all your local liquor stores at the same time. Well, spoiler alert, you can with Drizzly, the number one alcohol delivery app. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code SAVE5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two where we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at ArsBlog and also on the ArsBlog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the ArsBlog. James, I will give you the honour this week. Very generous of you, sir. Well, look, I'm going to open with a question from Facebook. It's from Ollie Rodwell. Okay. Uh, and I alluded to this earlier, but Ollie asks, what did you think of Meza Ozil against Leicester? A couple of good moments, but largely less effective than Xhaka or Ramsey. Would some time not being an auto-starter benefit him? I thought he was one of those players who didn't quite uh, play as well as we know that he can. He looked a little bit... Mm. He didn't look 100% fit to me, to be perfectly honest. Whether uh, whether that was his ankle, I don't know that it can be pre-season fitness because he played through most of pre-season. He's done all that kind of work. So it's not that he's one of those guys who's laid back and is lacking a little bit of physical preparation. Um, yeah, I mean, look, there are... Oh, 
he can do amazing things. But I think we've hit a point, perhaps, where people are looking at some of the stuff that he doesn't do as well and focusing on that. You know, I think he could have done more in the build-up. Was it, was it the first Leicester goal or the second Leicester goal where I think it could have been the first one where he was caught with the ball deep in our half right. in sort of the right-back position. I think he could he could be stronger in situations like that. I know he's not the most physically uh, intimidating kind of player, but, you know, he could be stronger in situations like that. Um, but he's just got this ability to to open up defences and to provide the kind of passes that we need. Maybe he's overshadowed a bit by by Xhaka at the moment because Xhaka seems to have taken corner-taking duties from him uh, in mm. some ways. Certainly the in-swingers Xhaka is taking. Ozil took the, uh, the out-swinger. But look, I, I think we got to wait and see a little bit where he is and how he performs um, over a few games. Uh, but to me, I would still have him in the team every week. I think I would too. I think it, it's inevitable, isn't it, that this season, more than ever, his performances are going to be scrutinised. I think especially with the contract situation, as long as that's uncertain, because of his playing style, people are going to look at him and question, potentially question his commitment. Mm. I mean, after 70 minutes, it's kind of heresy to say it, and Arsene Wenger never does it, but I was looking at it and thinking... Maybe Meza Ozil should come off because it didn't feel like things were happening for him. Alex Awobi's been in really good form in pre-season and I thought maybe that's a change you could make to try and enliven things. Yeah. But actually I was really surprised after that point how much energy Ozil managed to expend in those final 20 minutes. I mean, I thought he'd looked, as you say, not quite fit, not quite sharp. And yet there were times... In the last 10 minutes of the game, he was kind of playing as the lone frontman, almost chasing yeah. down defenders, yeah. chasing lost causes. He does have incredible reserves of stamina at times. Um, and I guess that's partly what makes it frustrating when he doesn't use those physical attributes a little bit more. Uh, I, I didn't think he had a good game, but I, I mean, I think that's kind of that's kind of all it was. I, I don't think that the solution is to drop him. I think we need him in the team. We need him to build that understanding with Lacazette. So, yeah, hopefully he finds his feet over the next couple of weeks because it wasn't his best performance. Funny enough, I don't know if he was on corners the whole game, I forget now, but the one he took just before the Ramsey goal, I think he might have taken that just because he had won it in the controversial circumstances that we saw with the mm. handball and that worked out brilliantly for us because it meant Shaka was on the edge of the box to supply the pass for Ramsey. So it's it's funny how things sometimes play out. That probably wasn't part of the plan, but there yeah. you go. Yeah. Well look, um I guess it's a bit weird as well to say wait and see about a player who's been out of the club now for you know heading into four years, five years. Is this, is this his fifth season? This is his I guess so. Yeah, it was a five-year deal. I 13, think. 14, yeah. 14, 15, 15, 16, 16, 17. 16. Yeah. So, yeah, I suppose that maybe as well tells a, a bit of a story. But, like, for me, I would have him in the team every week at this moment in time, um, particularly, you know, at home in the Premier League against uh, against opposition like like Leicester. Here's, here's one, though. Another player whose performance divided opinion. Uh, this is from... KB on Twitter, who's at KB underscore uh, is underscore on. And he says, on Twitter post Leicester, I haven't seen such division in opinions about the Ox's performance. What are your views? There has been real division, actually, because I, I think on the podcast we were 
a little critical of Ox after some of his pre-season performances. You know, we, we questioned his aspects of his delivery and his end product. And mm. uh, I had a few people come back at me online and say, what are you talking about? Oxlade Chamberlain's been brilliant since he moved to wing back. And in some respects he has. And when he played on the right-hand side back in the spring, he was very effective. I have to be honest, I'm not sure I've ever seen him play particularly well on the left. I think even mm. in the FA Cup final... He delivered a decent performance, but it was someone making the best of a far-from-ideal situation. Uh, and we all had a lot of fears about him playing in that position then, and I find it very surprising that he's started the season there. I can't work out what's going on with the Ox. You know, if Arsene Wenger wants him to sign a new contract, he's made it very clear he doesn't view him as a central midfielder. Is he playing him at left wing-back so that he's giving him some minutes so it feels like, look, you're going to be part of the team going forward. He's showing him, mm. him his importance because I can't believe that's the best thing for the balance of the team. I, you know, I, I just don't think he performs well enough in, in that position. And actually, when he switched over to the right for the final 20 minutes against Leicester, even though he's a right back in a 4-4-2, kind of a 4-4-2, he was much more effective. I just, I, I don't see it, I'll be honest, on the left-hand side. I, I don't think that's a position really that works for him at all. Yeah, I would agree. Um, Mike L on Twitter uh, sent me some some stats. Uh, he said Ox is weird. He looked average and yet he had six shots. I don't think any of those shots were any good, though. Uh, 15 out of 20 duels, four clearances, eight out of nine dribbles, three out of three tackles, three interceptions, two key passes. His stats were, were great. And I thought this is what this is what confuses me. Or not not so much confuses me, but gives me pause for thought because there are so many things about him that are that are great. You know, the physical attributes, the ability to burst past players. I thought he did his defensive work really well. Even when he was on the left-hand side as left wing back, I thought he defended well. There was one headed clearance at the back post which showed mm-hmm. a defensive awareness that he hasn't always had. Um, there were... There were moments where he drove on with the ball, where he, he he brought us forward, and I thought there were a lot of positive things about the way that he played until it came to doing something with the ball when it matters. And at that point, nothing he did was any good. And I think this is, well, I mean, this is, I think, the the crux of the issue for me, that he doesn't seem to be improving in that regard. The the final ball, the decision-making, he gets caught on his heels at times, you know, um, when he should be moving into space perhaps to pick up a pass. There are just those things that when it comes to, to, to doing it in the final third, which is really, really important, I don't know that he's improving or getting any better. And I don't know mm. whether you can say a guy played really well if he does X, Y, and Z very well, but when it comes right down to it, well, that was a shit metaphor, wasn't it? Or a shit allegory or um, whatever I was trying to do there. Um, it, just the final thing, if there's no end product on top of all that, then I don't know if you can say that he played well. He did certain things well, but can you say the guy played well? I don't know. He confuses me because he should be capable of much better at this point. But is the game not full of very talented footballers with, you know, outstanding physical attributes who never become elite players? Yeah. Because they they lack something almost undefinable. I mean, you even see it in youth prospects. You know, you look at a guy who's in the reserves or the youth team and you think, this guy has everything. You know, 
It's not the same, but if you think about someone back to someone like a J. Emmanuel Thomas or someone like that, you think this guy has everything, but something doesn't quite click. And it's it's it, is it just productivity? Is it about that clinical, that cool headedness? Mm. Is it decisiveness? And Ox, you know, he has power, he has skill, but so does Ross Barkley. But it doesn't mean Ross Barkley is a top 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 player because he's miss he hasn't yet got something to his game that he needs to make that leap to make that transformation mm. and uh, maybe he won't ever plenty of people don't ever that's the thing you know it's it's a it's a gamble isn't it you're waiting for something to happen now the problem is we're in a position with Docs where we're waiting and we could well lose him for nothing in 12 months yeah and uh, and that's not is is that wise, you know, to put your eggs in that basket and hope that this gamble pays off when even if it does, you might end up empty handed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think um I think what we know for, for certain, while there's a lot of uncertainty about Alex Ox- Oxley Chamberlain, what we know for certain is that he is not a left wing back. Definitely not. Mm. I don't think that's a position that suits him. I don't think it's particularly good for the team either. Uh, he has had some good displays at right wing back, but Arsene Wenger seems to prefer Hector Bellerin in that position. That seems to be the pecking order. Maybe he'll stay and be be the, I don't know, the compete for that position, but I'm not sure that he necessarily wants to. Um, so I, I I don't know. He, he confuses me. Uh, I like him. He seems a good guy. He's got a lot of good qualities, but when it comes right down to it, I think he's... At the moment, he's missing something that he really needs and should have more of at this point in his career after so many years at the club. I realise as well he's still only 23, so, you know, there's there's plenty of time, but I do wonder if a decision has to be made one way or the other soon. I mean, I, I think it's quite close between him and Bellerin. I don't think it's... Uh... I don't think the gap is massive. You know, Bellerin would be ahead in the pecking order for me, but I think that they're good enough that potentially you could rotate. I mean, do you think it's in Arsene Wenger's mind to think, look, Barcelona are going to come back for Hector Bellerin at some point? Do I want to let this other potentially very good right wing back go? You know, when that's a risk in one year or two years or whatever it is down Mm. the line? I don't know, maybe. Maybe, but then if Oxlade-Chamberlain isn't going to sign a new deal, which he seems uh, mm. not willing to do at this moment in time, then then you have to make a decision based on that. That's the big decision, not something that might happen in the future, something that is actually happening now. And that's a player who yeah. won't commit his future to the club despite being offered a new deal, which he's, of course, fully entitled to do. But then you have to you have to deal with that and you have to make decisions rather than this kind of hodgepodge thing of playing him on the left or, you know, moving him to right back when we're, de- you know, what's going on there? So th- there has to be some car- uh, clarity, I think. What does your gut say between now and the end of the window? What do you think is going to happen with Oxlade-Chamberlain? I think he'll probably stay because I don't think Arsene Wenger wants to lose him. So, mm. uh, yeah, I think he'll probably stay. It's Who's going to make the offer that's going to make us sell? Unless, let's say it all starts ticking in terms of Coutinho goes to Barcelona and Liverpool have a shit ton of money and they offer us a lot of money for Oxlade-Chamberlain, maybe something might happen. In that regard there, um, I, like I couldn't see us let him go to Chelsea, for, for example, uh, mm. j- just simply because I just don't, I, I'd see us more willing to deal with Liverpool than Chelsea. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but but at the moment, I don't see him going. But nor do I see Oxley Chamberlain being ready to sign a new contract. So it's just another one of those situations that we're we're having to deal with or manage or not manage, whatever way you want to look well, at it. I tell you what, my next question feels a little bit relevant to that. Um, this is from Matt Emeny, and Matt says, uh, given that we could lose Alexis, Ozil and Ox ne- next summer, Mertesacker is retiring, and players like Koscielny and Czech will be another year into their 30s, because all of them are out, let's not forget. Do you think Wenger should be more active this summer, even if it means spending more money and bringing in less from sales? Look, I think we've got a gap in the in the side for this season when it comes to central midfield, and I, I hope that we're gonna we're gonna deal with that. I don't think we're gonna see any more arrivals until we move some players on. I don't th- if we're gonna sign anyone else. I think it's gonna be in the last few days of the window, and it will be predicated on us moving on players like Wilshire and Gibbs and Jenkinson and Debushi and Perez. I think we have to move those on because we've got a 33-man squad. It is, as everybody knows, too heavy. We might bring in some money from transfer fees. Not an insignificant amount, but I don't think it's going to be a huge amount. But certainly what we're going to do is take a quarter of a million pounds a week, maybe more, off the wage bill, which could be redistributed then to players like Ozil and Sanchez, maybe to, to make them stay. Uh, but yeah, look, I think there, 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 there has to be an awareness that we've got to future proof if those players are going to leave. We can't be gambling on all three of those staying. We must be aware that there's a chance that, that all three could go on a free if the cards don't fall our way. So you'd like to think that there's a plan or, or a strategy. I don't think it's about this window though, that if, come January or February of next year, we're aware that Ox is not going to stay, that Ozil is not going to stay, that Sanchez is not going to stay. Then you have to start making plans to deal with that um, and to bring in the personnel. But I don't see it happening during this window because we're still dealing in maybes and mites. However cynical you might want to be about those players um, you know, some people say there's no way Sanchez is going to stay, and I would I would not put any money on Sanchez staying. But funny things can happen in football, and and you just never know. We're still dealing with possibilities rather than uh, actual definitives. But once we know definitively what those players are going to do, then we can start making plans. But it's up to the club as well to to put some pressure on those players to decide one way or the other to to let us know one way or the other because we can't lose that much talent in one window and hope to to a maintain where we are or b make progress and that's what everyone wants is for the club to make progress but i i don't think it's about this window you know but but certainly there's got to be some there's got to be some long-term planning put in place looking at the squad and going who's going to be here who's not what are we losing when are we going to lose them and how are we going to cope with that mm-hmm I, I think it, I think maybe it is more about this window, just because I worry that we're going to leave ourselves with a, a ridiculously big task next summer. I mean, imagine if Sanchez and Ozil do go, forget about Ox. You know that that's I don't know what what that's worth in the current market, but that's 150 million pounds worth of talent or something like that. And I don't necessarily I worry about our capacity to 
do all the necessary renovations in what will be, you know, a couple of months with a World Cup in it. Yeah, but, but but how do you how you're talking about what bringing in another three or four players? Mm. I don't see that as realistic in this window. You know, I don't. I don't, th- I, I don't I, think that is necessarily. But I think do you not have to start that process of like long term building for the squad? as well as having an eye on the short term. I admire the sort of short-term thinking of, we need to keep these players for next season. I think that's a positive. But I worry that there's not a huge amount of thought given to what comes beyond that, potentially. Yeah, well, look, we don't know what they're thinking, but I don't think it's realistic in any way to sign another three or four players this summer where we need to get rid of five or six or seven as it stands because the squad is too big. You can't then add another four or five because again you end up in a situation where you have unwanted players players who aren't playing players who are not necessarily a drain on resources but why are you paying this guy 40 50 grand a week if he's not going to play because your squad is too big there's just no chance for him to play so it's about finding that balance as well so that's why i don't think it's a thing that can happen or should happen in this window but it's certainly something that has to be addressed uh with, with some careful thinking and planning and strategy uh for the future so yeah but do you not think there's an example a, a sort of case of which we're sort of kind of worrying a bit too much about these players that we don't want like say a kieran gibbs for example He's not part of the squad at present. He's yeah. not really included in any way. I find it a little bit odd that Arsenal says we've got to move these guys on first because, I mean, why? Like, why? Like, uh, wh- why can't we just sit them there? Well, because uh, we could just sit them there, but then Kieran Gibbs is earning, what, three and a half million pounds a year? Carl Jenkinson earning a couple of million a year? Matthew Debuccio earning whatever he was on, 80 grand a week when he came in. Lucas Perez, what, 70 grand a week? Jack Wilshire is close to 100 grand a week at Arsenal. You know, you're talking Mm. about uh, over the course of a season, well, maybe even over the course of a week, you're talking, you know, a quarter of a million pounds, 300,000, 350,000 pounds a week in wages. And these guys are doing nothing. That's That's not a good way to run your football club particularly when you could use that money, A, to attract new players and pay new players good wages, players who are actually going to be in your squad, uh, and B, use those wages perhaps to give players who actually deserve it a pay rise because they're playing every week and you want to keep them. So I don't think you can just sit those players there. And I think if you overload your squad, you just keep that cycle going where you have players that you don't want, but they're earning a lot of money and that money then is just, you're just fucking burning it basically. You're pissing it down a fucking hole. So of course, but we kind of given ourselves that problem. Yeah, I, 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 mean, I guess. Yeah, I, I get it. It's our problem. It's our issue through bad management or through bad squad management. So address that. Don't perpetuate it. Don't keep it going. That would be my point on that. See, I think I kind of think. I, of course, I see that point, but I also think that if you're prepared to go, look, our priority is the football side of things to the extent that we will kind of write off let's say, 50 million quid as a fee for Alexis Sanchez. I kind of think you should also be in a position where you're prepared to write off the salary of Kieran Gibbs if it means you can bring in a player who improves the squad in the long term. Do you know what I mean? Sure. I, I mean, I get it, but I just don't think that it's it's going to happen because there's, there's too, too many players in the squad. I think we're stretched financially a little bit because of it. 
I don't think there's a huge budget left for transfers. Certainly, maybe there is more money for transfers than I think, but I don't think that the wage bill should be... You know, why would you pay an extra 25, 30 million, 40 million pounds in wages over the course of a year uh, when you don't have to, when you shouldn't? You know, I, I just think that finding the right balance of players in the squad is an important part because A, it keeps it competitive, but B, it means that your resources can be better used to bring in those players that you need to, to improve the squad. As it stands, you know, Arsenal could offer good wages to, to certain players, but with those guys gone, we've got much more scope to attract better players. That's just the way I, I look at it. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would like... Uh, obviously, I would love those players to go. I sort of feel like we've kind of been so public about our desire to get rid of some of them that I don't know how, how much it's helping us. I mean, mm. it, 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 it does feel difficult. I'm not particularly confident that we will get what we thought we were going to get for a lot of these guys. Um, but, yeah, time time will tell on that front. Yeah, I, I must say, that I've got on. one eye on next summer, and I just think it could be a real mess. I mean, I, I yeah. guess, you know, short-termist thinking is not the worst thing. Yeah. I do agree with that. that. That, like, next summer could be seismic in the sense that all those players could leave. But I think... Until you know definitively what they're going to do, you can't really start making plans um, because they they will hope to keep them. They'll hope to keep Alexis. They'll hope to keep Ozil, even if that is, uh, uh, of course, yeah. not not the most realistic or the most likely scenario. Um, right here's uh, here's a question. Where is it? Well, I just want to point this one out from Braden Pun on Twitter, who says uh, Jamie Vardy has now scored five times against Arsenal and been on the losing side every time. So that made me that made me laugh. Uh, here's a question from Brad Dennett, who's Brad, at Brad underscore Dennett. And he says, is the football world running out of quality managers? Uh, for example, super clubs like PSG and Barcelona getting seven out of ten managers. Yeah, I don't know about PSG necessarily. I mean, Jardim... Uh, is it Jardim? Is it no, PSG? it's uh, Emery, isn't it? Unai oh, Emery. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I got confused with uh, Monaco. Monaco. But, oh, no. Yeah, 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 that's right. Sorry, I was wrong. Uh, but, you know, he had done... He did really well, didn't he, at Sevilla? Uh, am yeah. I right about that? I, f- I feel like I'm showing my ignorance here. But um, but Barcelona, you seem to be able to just appoint pretty much anybody. I mean, I, again, I'm really not being clear on this, but Arsene Wenger did say that he basically thinks a robot will be made able to manage teams eventually, so maybe <laughs> this is just his, his uh, proclamation becoming true. I, I don't know... About at that point, wider generally, is it harder? I think, I guess, since the type, the culture of management has changed, hasn't it? I guess, mm. in that respect, Arsene Wenger's right, and managers don't build dynasties in the same way. I think there's more delineation of responsibility, so people have less uh, control. So I think it's probably a bit less tangible what a, what a coach's impact is than it was previously when they had the whole running of the football club. So it probably makes it more difficult to determine mm. uh, the the individual quality of each guy. I guess Arsene Wenger's kind of an exception in that respect. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes um, I think like this, the stature of a football club is in some ways more important than, or bec- seems more important than the manager. You know, Real Madrid will always be Real Madrid. They'll be a huge, important football yeah. club, regardless of who they, regardless of who they have in charge. So, you know, uh, 
same with Barcelona. You look at some of the managers Barcelona have had down the years, and they're not household names. Uh, you know, Martino, uh, Rechac, you know, guys who mm. were there and in charge who didn't necessarily do particularly well. The new guy, Valverde, uh, where, where was he? Bilbao, was it? He was Atletico Bilbao, I think. Um, I I'll have to look that up for you now. Yeah, Athletic Bilbao. Um, yeah, Bilbao. So he was manager there for for a while. But, you know, you look at the clubs that, that he's managed, Bilbao, Espanyol, Villarreal, Valencia. You know, he's a bit of a journeyman manager. But does that in, in any way lessen the stature of Barcelona as a football club or the expectations that people would have, fans would have, or, or just people who watch the game simply because they are Barcelona? They are expected to be competitive in La Liga and the, the Champions League. So I don't know if... Um, the manager becomes is as important for a club like that maybe it's more important for a club that's slightly bubbling under so yeah I, th- I mean obviously in the case of Barcelona and Madrid a lot of it's down to the quality of the players isn't it it's not really the truest test of a manager mm. and you know sometimes you get a big club that does fine with a manager who then goes on to do nothing elsewhere I mean think of Di Matteo winning the Champions League at Chelsea and yeah. the, the subsequent career he's had uh, I think that's the thing. I think it's just harder to determine the impact of a manager in some cases than it has ever been. Yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe we should treasure Arsene Wenger all the more as a consequence. Uh, more so than we do, maybe. Right. Uh, let's have another question, shall we? Yes. Let's. Okay. Let's, let's, Any time you're ready, you know, just... Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, OK. And to... Well... Back on transfers again. Antonio Fisitolo on Facebook says, Do you think Van Dyke is a player we should be after? As Mertzak is retiring at the end of the season and Koscielny will be 33 next year and has a constant Achilles problem. Mm. I Yeah, I do think that centre-half is an area, when we're talking about future-proofing, I think centre-half is an area that we really do need to look at because, you know, Monreal, I think, can do a job there in a back three, but is essentially a, a left-back um Although, you know, we've seen players like Azpilicueta, for example, flourish, who was a, a fullback and flourish in a, a back three, and it seems to be something of a of a trend. But again, Monreal is a player who's in his early 30s, so not one for the long term. Koscielny, he's got that Achilles problem, as we all know, and that is going to impact his career, I think, as he... Uh, as he gets a little bit older. Mertesacker retiring at the end of the season. Callum Chambers is not... Uh, or does not appear to have a future at Arsenal. Gabriel, mm-hmm. you know, unconvincing at times. Um, so you'd have worries about him. And then what are you left with as centre-halves? You're left with Shkodran Mustafi and uh, Rob Holding and uh, Kolasinac, who we hope is going to be a, a left wing-back as long as we play in this uh, three-of-the-back formation. So, yeah, it is an area that we we should be looking at certainly in the long term. Whether we can do it, again, we come back to whether this is something we can do this season, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that he will because we we do have plenty of options there as it stands. Um, So, yeah, I mean... About £60 million, aren't they? We're not going to pay £60 million for for Van Dijk. No way. I I just don't see us using what money we have left in that area of the pitch, particularly, again, as I say, I think, uh, as I say, um, uh, central midfield is a bigger issue for me this this uh, this summer. But, again, and he's one of those players, 
I think he's a spectacular looking defender, but one over whom I would have just a few few doubts um, about his ability to to step up. I'm not quite sure what it is that doesn't convince me about him, and I could be proved really wrong here. He could go somewhere and be an absolute stalwart somewhere else. Um, in terms of Premier League, I think he's one of the standout central defenders in the Premier League, partly because of his size, his physicality. He's very impressive in that regard, but I just... Whether that speaks to the quality of defenders in the Premier League or the quality of Van Dijk, I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I I haven't watched Southampton regularly enough to have a really good read on how good he's going to be. It does sound like a an insane amount of money, doesn't it? Mm. But uh, yeah, I, I think centre half in the long term is something you want to do. I don't. I agree with you. I don't think he's going to address that this summer. Mm. Um, although maybe if Chambers and Gabriel were to both go, that might shift things around. Yeah, maybe. Maybe you would need more depth there, to be perfectly honest. But, uh, yeah. All right. Here's a question from Lewis Freeman, who's at Ludu92. It's all rhymey. Um, he says, given how promising Big Sead looks, I like that he didn't use his surname there. Well done. Uh, who has been our best ever free transfer? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, Guillaume Warmers. No, I don't know. <laughs> who, uh, who else has been a free transfer? Let, well, let's start with that. I mean, well, uh, Shamak was a free transfer, wasn't he? Yeah, that, he's not it. Um, he's not I, it. I, I, um, I think probably the one that sticks out for me, and I'm sure it's one that people will be uh, banging their desks, um, Saul Campbell? Oh, of course. Of course. It was so unbelievable that it was a free transfer that I forgot about it. That must be for many reasons the greatest free transfer in Arsenal history. Yeah. Um, I can't even think of a, a close contender to that, to be honest. Well, what was Sesc a free transfer? Does that count? Because well, he was out of contract at Barcelona, or he hadn't yet been given a contract at Barcelona, so he wasn't contracted to another club and then able to leave on a free. some compensation, didn't we, I think? Like, yeah, Giovanni you know, Van Bronckhorst. about that. Was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alex Kleb, years down the line. No, I... Um, uh, yeah, I I can't think of anything that's competed with that in terms of pure value for Mali and also how hilarious it was. Flamini, I guess. We signed Flamini on free transfers twice. Mm. But no comment from you there to suggest that was a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, he was, yeah, he was Flamini. He, he came, he saw, he was Flamini. Um, yeah. I, I can't think that's think probably. The, I'm trying to think of any others. Was Remy Gard a free transfer? Quite possibly. Mm. Quite possibly. Um, I'm just scrolling through our transfer history. I don't think there's anything to really compete with Sol Campbell. That's got to be the yeah the best one in terms of the impact that he had and the success that he had at the club. There's uh, there there isn't a better one I think than Sol Campbell. So yeah, if if uh, if Kalasinak gets anywhere close to that, yeah, he might have done too badly. Not at all. Not too badly at all. Not at all. Um, any further questions? I don't know if I've got any more. We? Oh, I'll tell you what. Well, let's deal with this. Devin Parkinson on Facebook. He says, "Do you think the whole Sanchez Twitter activity was really accidental, or do you think him and his agent purposely planned it?" Did you see this? This was the, <laughs> this was the the bizarre 
interaction he had with uh, 80s hit maker Richard Marks. Is that what you're talking about? I, I think so. And the, the tweet was tagged from Paris. His location was set as Paris. Did you see this? Yeah. I mean, he was at the game on Friday night. He's injured. He's got a new girlfriend. He probably took her to Paris, the city of love, to have a romantic little break. Why wouldn't you? I don't... Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> what else could it be, James? I mean, what are you trying to say? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what these people are alluding to. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing in Paris all the time. He seems to be in Paris every five minutes. There was some chat that it was something to do with a visa, wasn't it? That he has to renew his his European visa or something over in Paris? I don't know. Why do you have to do it in, um, in Paris? It's just, you don't have to. It's just more romantic. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, but it was quite strange because he, he, the tweet was to Richard Marks, who uh, made some terrible, terrible music in the 1980s. Um, uh, and Alexis Sanchez, uh, as much as I love him as a footballer, has got very dubious taste in music. The soundtrack to some of his Instagram stories is terrible. Terrible. He has used Phil Collins in the past. He has used Phil Collins, but he tends to use quite cheesy music. And uh, um, he, he also, yeah, so he tweeted Richard Marks and then it showed up as, uh, you know, he said, come and play at the Emirates, come play football at the Emirates. Richard Marks said, we could sing together or something. I don't quite know what it was. And then, it, <laughs> and then he said, uh, yeah, he repeated that tweet because he deleted the one uh, that, that showed his location as Paris. Maybe, James, it just shows a little bit of self-awareness. That he just was in Paris for for romantic reasons and for nothing to do with PSG whatsoever. I think that's a reasonable uh, assumption. And then looked at it and went, uh-oh, you know, some people might draw the wrong conclusions from this. As a conscientious Arsenal player, I do not want to further any speculation, so I'll take it down and and repeat the... the um, repeat the tweet without the Paris bit, and then everything's, everything's hunky-dory. I think that's all mm. it was. To be honest, I think that's probably true. I mean, I he might well have it in his mind to go to PSG, but I, I don't think it's going to be this summer. So, there you go. Yeah. All right, well, look, I think, uh, I think we'll leave it there for this week. I think we've covered the first weekend of the Premier League season. Um, can you do that another 37 times? Uh, no, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I won't survive. I won't survive that. But I don't know. Hopefully things calm down a little bit. Stoke next, so... I doubt it will calm down there, but, uh, yeah, we need some respite sooner or later. Mm, all right. Well, look, last week or last season's visit to Stoke was a very successful one. We we broke that hoodoo that had been hanging over us, so hopefully we can repeat the feat on Saturday. But we will discuss that and more in the Arsecast on Friday. Join me for that then, and James and I will be back uh, next Monday to look at uh, everything that goes on in the second week of the heart-stopping, butter-clenching uh, Premier League season. Until then, have a good one. Bye-bye. holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. 
Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply.